You're listening to a session of Come Celebrate, hosted by the Bay Christian Family Church. Praise the Lord. I'm reading today from the book of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to speak in Afrikaans. Is it okay? Lucas, Lucas 22. We're going to speak in Dutch. It's Lucas 22. Jesus' disciples, all 11 of, 11 of them, came from Galilee. Galilee is 700 physical feet or 250, almost 300 meters or 200 meters below sea level, which means the temperature is always warm and very pleasant. The atmosphere, things grow really well there with all the water and, and the climate the way it is. And uh, the Galileans were all blue collar, which means they were not highly educated, not city people. They spent their lives fishing and farming, lots of farming, olives and wine and they had different factories going on in different places. Mary Magdala came from Magdala, which was a big fishing factory area. It's, they uncovered that city not long ago. Peter came from Bethsaida, which is on the river mouth of the Jordan entering into the Galilean area. So they had, they had physical farming, but they had a lot of fishing, two kinds of fishing, the one in the lake and the one on the river, and different rivers and different methods of casting different kinds of fish coming down the Jordan. And so Peter was from that town, as was his brother. And two accounts give us of his actual calling. One when, his, when the fishing nets where Christ calls him, and the other one where him and his brother are, the Jerusalem area, following a, a crazy evangelist man called John the Baptist, who wore camel skin clothes and leather, strange leather belts and ate locust and wild honey, much like the Hessenes. For those who are not familiar with the word has seen, there were many different political groups in the time of Jesus, many different religious groups in the time of Jesus, and one of them were extremists, the Hessenes. They wore long white clothes, and they had ceremonial baptism every single day. And they prayed, and, and they fasted, and they were extremely holy living. They were extremists in every way. And so they camped out there near, the, in the desert, in a place called Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. And John the Baptist spent a lot of time there and, of course, gathered for two years right before he's about to qualify as one of them. Then he leaves and starts his ministry. And, of course, they write about him and they write about his beheading and such like. But he had taken, adopted a lot of their understanding doctrines, their devotion, their baptism. He adopted a lot of their methods in his ministry and preaching repentance, repeating, calling the Israelites back to putting God first. And so this Andrew and Peter were there listening to it, Andrew especially, and then when Jesus meets Andrew, he tells him, go and call your brother, of course, Shimon, Simon. That's how he said in Hebrew, Shimon, the very common name. And of course, Simon comes there and he's recruited. And Peter himself was married and lived in in. Capernaum or Capernaum as you might know it, uh, the house of Peter's there next to the synagogue or near the synagogue, but it's not really his house, I believe, because he had a mother-in-law. His mother-in-law, who was healed by Jesus, could not have been staying with a very young couple. It's most unethical or non-Jewish tradition. For her to have stayed there, it was her house in the first place, and she would not have had her daughter and young son-in-law live there unless her husband was dead, which was very customary to have a son adopted into your family like that. 
So the most likely th of occurrences was she had a big house. Her husband was a successful man in many ways. And so he's, this daughter of hers had married into this Peter's family. And Peter came to live there. And Jesus lived in that house too, according to Sir Luke, that he came home to Capernaum or Capernaum. He came home to that town. So I'm trying to sketch you Peter's life. So when Jesus calls Peter, he's married. And unlike the, the, when Jesus called disciples, he picked 12 after a night of prayer. And of the 12, two of them were very much, very focused or very high profile. And that was John and Peter. John was only 18 when he met Jesus. He was one of the two sons of thunder. Also, they also came from Bethsaida. And they also ended up in Capernaum too, which is a very ideal place to have lived. I can explain all that to you if I had more time. But I haven't got time for now. Just trust me. And so... This man, this man, young man, John, wrote the book of John, as you know. He wrote it in his 80s, 80s years when he was in, in Ephesus, and he wrote the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos later years. He was the only apostle that did not die in any way, shape, or form as a martyr. He died of old age, way in his 90s. So you can imagine, he was 18 years old, met Jesus, how long he had walked. Understand, when 70 AD, most of the Gospels and most of the writings took occurred after Israel had, had gone through the crisis, and then some of those apostles already were died or have going to die very soon. Whereas John lived a long life and rewrote the book of John or wrote the book of John later life. That's why his focus is so more on the message. He felt, and he wrote five times in his own book, John, five times, the one who Jesus loved, as if he was special. Nobody else writes it about him. He's the only one. So somehow he believed that Jesus loved him. And I've, my personal take is that Jesus told each one he loved them, but John sucked it up and believed it. And so he positioned himself physically always next to Jesus. And he does nothing. To me, he doesn't do much. When Peter and John go up to the temple, it's Peter that raises up the man who's lame, not John. Just, John just watches everything. He's young. And full of, full of fire and zeal in his heart and keen on the Lord. But his whole life was dedicated to the ways of the Lord. But Peter was a different kind of person in more ways than one. Seemed like he was very insecure and even threatened by John. He always was trying to win the fiction of Jesus. When the, feeding the 5,000, the very next morning they are on the boat waiting for him. And he's walking on the water towards them. And he tells them not to be afraid, it's me. And the very first words out of Peter's mouth is, if that's you. He just said, it's me, if that's you, then tell me to come. The logic of wanting to do something that has no reason. Feeding the 5,000, there was a need, but there was no need to walk on the water. Peter needed to do something emotionally to be different. Washing the disciples' feet, he gets to Peter. He says, I must wash your feet. He has to be different. He wants to be someone special. To Jesus. He was trying so hard to be special. He had struggles. Now, all of us in our lives, we're born with personalities, all of us. Your personality is like your fingerprint. There are no two people are the same on this planet. They may call you all kinds of names like sanguine or phlegmatic, but it groups you only some behavior. But the truth is, you have a completely unique personality, completely. It may be similar to someone else, but not the same. Your character gets developed and grows and God works in your character to make your personality more manageable and more livable by other, other people. And that's your journey. It's all the fun part of it all. Some people are just born with certain traits, like Moses was born with temper, with anger, with rage. And that non-manageable thing that didn't manage it all the way is the very thing that kept him from going to the promised land. He didn't end well.
Samson didn't end well. He ended blind and under rubble because he didn't manage his insecurities either. He had a betrayal issue. He was threatened by his wife when she asked, tell me what's secret to this, this riddle of yours. And he said, I didn't even tell my parents. Why would I tell you? In other words, he didn't trust anybody. And so it ended up that he ended up being blind and all that because of, his, of that in his character was undealt with in his, his personality. All of us in this room today have character things that need to develop and grow. And we need to allow the Lord to work in us for our benefit. He'll only help you make your life better. Do you understand? Okay, good. Now, we find Peter, after so many events in his life and being prepared, what was happened to Jesus... Right before the time comes, in fact, it's that the Passover. Let me just briefly give you sketches for you. There are seven main feasts that we know from Moses that are applicable to the Jewish life. It all pertains to the exit of the, not only the new year, but the exit of, of Egypt. There are seven feasts. Three of them surround Easter, as you know it. We have Pascha, or Passover, which is the main, really one night, usually close to Shabbat or Sabbath, and we sacrifice a lamb. We eat lamb and all kinds of food. It's a very special time that you eat a Passover dinner together, and you have a cup and a bread, and you start with your second feast, which is the unleavened bread, goes on seven days, and then you have halfway through that, you have first fruits. So those three feasts are pertaining to Easter as a Jew, and that's what Jesus began. If you understand the principle, you will get so excited about the Savior because he was a sacrificial lamb, and there was the unleavened bread for those three days where there was no rising, and then the he was the first fruits of the new life. So everything was very much paralleled in the, in the kingdom of God. And he said, I've longed to have this Passover fast, uh, feast with you. And he has time with them and he washes their feet and they begin to, 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 that's what makes me so crazy. They begin to debate which one's the greatest of them. If I was there, I would have got and slapped them all and said, pull yourselves together. You were the son of God. How could you be thinking about any greatness in your own self? After all that dispute, Jesus says these words, in the book of Luke, chapter 22, are you with me? Stay with me. Luke 22, verse 31, he says, Simon, you know, he called him Peter. He told, changed his name, but he's calling him Shimon. There were two Simons, of course, disciples. And this is the Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. What a strange thing to say right towards the end of his journey with ministry. We knew the time is coming close now. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. What do you, what do you mean Satan has asked? How do, you, how do you know that? Who's he asked? He asked God, the Father. He asked God, the Father. How, how do you know that? Well, I was in the courts of heaven praying, talking to my father, and the devil came in there. He can get in there, yeah. And he came and he, he, asked, he asked God, can he sift you? But I prayed for you. Oh, thanks. Thank you. It's so cool to know. Boy, I'm you and me, Jesus. You and me. I prayed for you. What, what did you pray? I prayed that your faith may not fail. That my, my, no, no you, no, you didn't pray that. No, you didn't. Come on, you prayed I'm going to beat him down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to. No, you didn't pray my, my faith wouldn't. Why would you pray that? My, and when you turned back. When I turned back? Where am I going to? Oh, you're going. Strengthen your brothers. I'm going, I'm going somewhere and I'm coming back. But he replied, Lord, let's be real. I'm willing 
to go with you to prison, you and me, and to death. I'm gonna, they can kill me. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, nice Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. Wow, you, you know this, Jesus, that he's going to deny him three times, and you don't try and stop him? Why would you not try and stop him? Have you ever wondered in your life why God didn't just stop? If I just left two minutes later, I could have avoided that car wreck. Why didn't God just stop me marrying that person? Why didn't God just, I asked the Lord, why didn't the Lord intervene and do something? How can God allow this to happen to me? What's with that? I mean, if you know he's going to deny him, why don't you do something about it? That's a terrible thing. Because Jesus said, if you can't acknowledge me before the Father, then I won't acknowledge. If you, if you can't acknowledge you for man, I can't acknowledge you for the Father. So it's very serious offense if you don't recognize Jesus, if you act like you don't know him in public. So and this is what Peter, who's the, this very top apostle, leader, disciple, He's going to deny the Lord that night in the crisis, not once, but three times. And Jesus knows it, and there's no stopping him. It's like, what, what, I don't get this. Why would you even let him go through something like this, the crisis? And, and when you come back, he, he's going to mess up and he's already restored? That's what I talk when I talk to you about, is restoration. The Lord's nature and heart has always been to restore. Israel let God down so many times and he restored them every time. He even was that dramatic. He said, I divorce you, Israel. You no longer belong to me. He told Moses, go and tell them I'm about to destroy them. So many times he had been frustrated with the nation and he kept forgiving and loving them and lifting them up and restoring them. God's into restoration. And since Jesus came and put his blood on the mercy seat, it only got more intense of kindness and goodness. And when God saves us, it's because we absolutely need saving. If any man thinks that he is okay and doesn't need saving and self-righteous, you're in a terrible place. If you think you're sitting there today and you have absolutely no sin in your life, then you are fooled. First John 1.8 says, if you say that you have no sin, you're lying. Because you are redeemed, he covers you completely, even if you just had a bad thought. Or there's always something going on because we're living in this world. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, you don't need me to wash all of you, only your feet. Because you are redeemed and washed by my word, but you're in contact with this world. So your feet are touching this world continually. You, you're not of this world, you're in this world. Father, I pray you protect them, not take them out of this world, but protect them in this world. That's what his prayer was in John 17, because you are subject to this world. And then you're also very human. Peter was so human and so weak that he had every intention. He said, I'm going to go to prison for you. I'm going to die. That was his intention. That didn't work. That was messed up. Now, Jesus said, and one of you is a devil. Only one? Well, how about Judas and Peter? Because Judas only betrayed the Lord once. Peter denied him three times. But he wasn't even included in that bad spirit. Only Judas. So it seems to me that God has complete grace and tolerance for weakness, it's wickedness that God has no time for. Because Judas had made a clear decision. And here's the, listen, listen to me, I'm going to sketch this, we stay with me. There are 12 disciples, and one of you will betray me. <gasps> ask him, John, ask him who's going to be. You can tell. You can tell with the brethren around you who's on fire. 
who loves God, who's doing ministry. You can't, Judas was so functioning and so seemingly Christian and so delivering people that are bound and healing the sick and preaching the good news and yet there was betrayal in him. His heart somewhere along the line received wickedness. By the time he hung himself, it was the demon that he gave himself to in that journey. Somewhere the demon began to talk to him and reason with him and he bought the deal. You know, Judas, this is crazy. And the whole thing is, you might not like what I'm going to tell you now, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> Judas was the only one that wasn't Galilean. He was from Iscariot, that's more south towards the Dead Sea area. And uh, he was not, he was just an ordinary Jew. And yet the one who should have done the books was Matthew. He was the smart one. But they gave the job of taking care of the books to Judas because it's a funny thing how money will expose what's in your heart. It's a funny thing that God will see if you really will give or whether you will separate or how important it is to you. And he's doing the books and the devil says to him, you know, Judas, this is a winning, a losing battle here with this, this new cult that you're part of. Yeah, he heals the sick, but there's never money. He has to go get a coin out of a fish to pay tax. So you just, you're following a loser. There's no money here. That's why he sold his knowledge of him for some money. Because you want to get something out of the deal. Money played a role in his life. Are you hearing me? And the devil convinced him and he, and he says, And one of you is a devil, betray me. And he said, me, he said, me, the one who dips his morsel. And so when Judas does it, he looks at Judas in the eye and he says, That what you're going to do? Do quickly. He gives him every chance to be convicted, every chance to change. But when your heart is wicked, your heart is hardened. Many Christians have asked me, Ed, what about <laughs> blaspheming the Holy Ghost? I'm so afraid I've done it. If you even think that, you've not. Because if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, your heart is so hardened, you don't care. It means nothing to you. And that's the dangerous place is when you get disconnected from a relationship. My biggest anxiety in life is my family of God that start out born again, speaking in tongues, and become disconnected. My biggest anxiety in life. Because Jesus said in that day, you'll say, didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we heal the sick? Didn't we prophesy? And I say, I don't know you. Use that same phrase also with the ten virgins, the five, the all virgins, all that, oil, all that lamps, all that oil. One just ran out of oil. And he said, I don't know you. Not that you don't know me. I don't know you. And God can't know you if you don't fellowship with him. You may know his word, know about him, but he can't know you if you don't have intimacy with him. You can have a whole lot of prayer and go to warfare, but if you're not intimate with the Lord in fellowship, when you started out, you were so excited with this relationship, that's what you've got to keep on a life. Remain in me that I can remain in you. Without me, you can do nothing. If you have no fruit, you have branched without any fruit, then the gardener will come and cut you off and you'll be thrown to the fire. That's why you've got to stay in him. Now, when someone messes up, there's a time of weakness, like with Peter. He was weak. He had every intention not to, but he, he fell. And God gave him a whole restoration plan. He needed, listen to me now, I hope I'm going to get this through to you. It was, God didn't stop him doing it because it was part of his journey. He needed to fall. Why? Because he was such 
insecure, struggling disciple, needing, competing, want to walk on the water, cut a man's ear off, doing something weird, always something, want to build a tent for Elijah and Moses, really. He's always trying to prove to Jesus he's worthwhile. And the only way for him to get free of it was to be such a loser that if he's going to do anything, it's going to have to be on God's terms and his strength. It's not anymore what he can earn or deserve. When you're striving and trying so hard, you've not learned to be completely dependent upon him. And that's what God wants. He wants dependency, not independency. It's not about you and your salvation. It's about him in your life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Am I, am I telling you the truth today? Listen to me. And so when he fell, he was such a failure. Now he's going to get up and encourage the brethren, stand in front of them. And they all know that he knows they know what he did. And he's got to encourage them. So now it has to be completely because God's in me. There's nothing I can ever boast in because I sank. I messed up. I couldn't even kill one Roman. I'm a loser, but I'm encouraging you because he is good. His whole message, his whole way, his whole demeanor changes completely because of his deep failure. Do you understand? So God will use those things, but it's the brethren that are the challenge. We have different levels of maturity and understanding. And of course, in this country, particularly, my experience has been there's a lot of policemen here in this nation. Everyone's got an opinion about another church. You are just fortunate enough to have the one mega exception as a leader. You will never hear a bad word out of your pastor's leadership's mouth, ever. I've listened all my life, never. I've even tried to get in a conversation about something, and they will steer it away because they will not talk about someone else. You are very fortunate in this church. But generally, people have an opinion about someone else. No, and I don't want to hear. Because it's really nothing to do with me. And if we talk about the people, we're not helping the church. We cannot afford to lose one person in the kingdom, one worker. We cannot afford to lose one. If Jesus called Peter, was he surprised he's going to deny him? No, he knew full well. Didn't stop him calling him. And so here's the thing, we couldn't lose Peter's value in ministry because he was weak and fell. And so Galatians 6, which your pastor quotes verse 6 every time, verse 1 says, If any among you are caught in sin, let him that is spiritual restore him with gentleness. Not him who is in leadership, strong, successful, powerful, gifted, trained, someone who's spiritual. Because when someone has been caught in sin, whether it be a moral failure, whether it be financial mess, done something really stupid, it's because somehow they got over a period of time disconnected. They came to church every Sunday, but they got so used to the spiritual things, their conscience became seared and dulled and they lost the sensitivity to the Holy Ghost and the supernatural and they got away from the intimacy with the Lord and it takes a spiritual person to restore them. Not someone that's angry, knowledgeable, legalistic. They can't. They don't know how to restore. It has to be someone that's in harmony and in contact with the Father because the truth is, and you mentioned that about touching the garment she said, if I can just touch his garment, woman of the issue of blood, if I can just touch his garment. And then she did, and then some, Jesus, Jesus said, who touched me? And they, all the people are saying, but everyone's touching you. They're touching him. But she didn't even touch him. She touched the garment. She was touching something that was touching him. 
But she was touching him differently because she touched with an expectancy. She went there to touch him. The others were just touching him and getting nothing. Many Christians touch the Lord every day and get nothing. But I'm looking for someone that will touch him in such a way that when someone touches you or comes in contact with you, they'll be healed and delivered and touched. They'll know they're in contact with the living God. Because really the truth is that we teach people how to minister and help restore and satisfy and do things, but we teach them. But they have both hands on the, on the people needing ministry, when in fact what they really need is someone that can put one hand on God and the other hand on them. Listen, listen, listen. Job 9, 11, Job says, if there was only one that could arbitrate for me. The Amplified says, if put one hand on God and the other hand, someone that can stand the gap between me and God and just connect me back to the Lord. And that's what restoration really is, is to draw them back to the relationship that brought you into salvation. The whole purpose of why you're here today is to be connected to the Lord and to be filled with Him. If you start to feel that waning, make time and find that place where you can be quiet with God again and can reconnect with Him because you're life has no real value and purpose and, and enjoyment with outside of him. You can drive the fastest, beautifulest car, have the most money, be successful. But if you don't have that, you've got nothing because there is no life outside of him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And God's the restorer. And the way we restore is not to talk about people. That's most important. The difficulty in our churches is, and I thank God for the Catholic church. They have a little box they call a confessional. You can go in there and confess a murder and they cannot tell somebody but a Christian if you tell them <laughs> you have telegram telephone but tell a Christian <laughs> you laugh about it but that should not be that should be the one place that the world can come to listen to me I'm going to give you a key now you must listen to this confession brings enormous healing 90% 90% of your deliverance is in your confession wait wait Thessalonians <laughs> says if you confess your faults one to another so you can be healed now the power of confession is not to tell some of it because while there's something in darkness the devil's got a hold of you so true confession means to tell it all and most people are too afraid to tell it all for various reasons in case you will hate me afterwards or you'll judge me or you will, you'll never like me, you'll never talk to me again. If you knew, I'll tell you some of it, but I can't tell you all. I'm too ashamed. Whatever. While you have shame, you've not really confessed yet. Because once you confessed in the light, away goes the shame. Instantly the shame goes because God sets you free. Now, if you've got no one you could confess to, you've got a problem. So we need to be, as Christians, start changing our mode operandi. We need to start keeping stuff to ourselves. And even if we feel very compelled to tell someone, even our husband or wife, then it's not the nature of Christ in you. Do you hear what I'm saying? People say to me, brother, they have a right to know. I've heard that expression so much in the church. They have a right to know. Well, show me that scripture and I'll show you the true scripture. Look what happened. A woman caught in the act of adultery. She's caught. There's no escape. They throw her in front of the Sanhedrin and they want her to judge her so they can stone her. And they think, let's catch Jesus because now there's no escaping this scripture. We can't find fault with Let's bring, let's trick him. They bring him and he's teaching a group of people. They throw in front of her. So, Rabbi, what should we do with this woman? Why? She's caught in the act of adultery. And what does the scripture say? The scripture says that she should be stoned. Okay, let's stone her then. Uh, you that have, have no sin, if you have no sin, none of you have sin, go ahead, be the first. 
And he takes a stick and he starts writing in the sand in Hebrew. Now, what's he writing? Why is he writing in the sand? Because he knows each one's life and doesn't want to expose them, although that's what I would have done. Because you have the arrogance to come and judge her while you yourself haven't taken care of the log in your own eye. That's what I would have done. But Jesus is not like that. The nature of Christ, he's writing in the sand enough information so each one knows he knows, but nobody else has to know, even in their lives. And they all disappear. The conviction was so strong, they all left. And she looked at the woman that's actually guilty. So where are your accusers? She says, I don't have any. And I don't accuse you either. That's the son of God who can accuse. And then he says to her, go leave your life of sin. The life of sin is the separation from God. What you saw her doing was only the fruit of what is really wrong. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not a threat. It's a promise. So if you're not keeping his commandments, it's because you don't love him enough yet. Because if your love is fading for you, for him, it becomes easy to do that stuff. When you love the Lord, it's very difficult. You just have no inclination. You just can't stand watching bad stuff or negative things. You can't be around things that are unclean. It doesn't, you just don't want to. And there's no one telling you to do it. Your love for him is driven. So when you are so easily doing that stuff, your love for God is becoming under pressure. And that's my biggest anxiety. You don't become disconnected and your conscience seared and compromised. That's my biggest concern. But we as a family in a church cannot afford to lose any ministry. And there are ministries that have fallen by the wayside and leaders and people and Christians through many different difficulties. And it's our job to help become spiritual to restore them back to the intimacy with, with Christ. Do you understand? We don't, if someone has a ministry, you don't restore the ministry, they never lose the ministry. That's what the scripture says. They don't lose their ministry. What they've lost is the connection. And we have to get them back to be connected. You know, God doesn't want you in prison when you make a mistake. He wants you in hospital. That went over across your heads. When someone messes up and does a bad thing, we want to imprison them. And God wants to put them in hospital, get them healed. Do you understand? No Christian can be your enemy. It's not possible. They're your family of God. And it's our job to make sure we all work together. So the common, God, common plan of God can be accomplished. We need to be able to restore and heal. And bring life to people. And, it's, and I thank God that your pastor, I've watched him, I've listened. He, you know, he says a lot of things, but it's his life and, and his wife's life that has impressed me the most over the many years. You can't pretend those things. And they've lived, they've lived the ethics and the integrity of the Word of God. So if, when someone criticizes your pastor, and he's not perfect, I'm sure he's not. But they must watch their words because I've not met someone quite like this yet that is so integrous and so full of restoration and healing, and they will, will restore. And I want this body of Christ, this family, to have that mindset. I'm not going to be lured into a conversation with gossip about someone else. Yes, they may have done something bad immorally. They may have before. And in their past, especially if God's forgiven them, it's none of anyone's business. Because God puts it in His seer forgetfulness. How come you still remembering it? And we are children of God. We represent the Almighty God. God's into restoration. Complete restoration. And if you've messed up, it's time for you to talk to someone you can really open up to. 
Let them bring healing to your life and get back connected to the Lord. Don't sit there with your struggle by yourself. If you're struggling with some things in your life and you're too ashamed to tell someone, <laughs> your deliverance will come first when you come out, come clean. Whether that pornography or that adulterous affair or that th stealing from the business you're working for, wherever you are that the guilt and the conviction is happening and you want to serve God and you feel ashamed, you don't have to walk with it. The devil's trapped you. He trapped you. You can get out of it. Come to the body of Christ. Let, let the family of God help you and restore. And then when you restore, you need to restore somebody else. It's what we do. We can't afford to lose one redeemed soul, not one worker for God's kingdom. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Thank you. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. There's now no condemnation. The goodness of God who loves us so much. And we can just start today by not accepting any kind of gossip or scandal. We're not interested. Unless it's affecting your life personally, you have no business talking about it or even listening to it. Have you heard about that, Pastor? No, and I don't want to. Because I don't want to, be, I don't want to have to deal with it. I've gotten old now, and I, I believe that, that ignorance is bliss. The less I know, the happier I am. That's true. I just don't want to know because I'm happier. When you start filling my mind with that junk, it messes me up. I don't want to know. I wish there were things that my children have told me that I, didn't, I could unhear and undo my mind. I can see why in the Garden of Eden, the, the whole knowledge of good and evil was a blessing. God was helping them. Because the first thing they find out is they're naked. How did that help anything? Didn't. So the, uh, God was being kind to us, keeping that unnecessary information away from us. I want to have that kind of heart where I don't care about other stuff. Just care about Him. Are you hearing me? This is an outstanding church, and I can say that without, and I, have, I don't need people to like me or don't like me. I'm telling you the truth. I travel the world. This is not an ordinary church on every level. Every church has highlights or certain attributes that are exceptional, all of them, whether it's faith or whether it's supernatural they're doing or whether it's just love they have. But this church has, to me, has it all. I could not say one thing I see is lacking in this church, and you are so blessed and privileged to be part of it. God has chosen you. You cannot imagine if you part of this family, God picked you carefully. And we are going places. We are moving forward, and we need to be even more close to each other. Look at the person around you and know that they are your family. Whether you picked them or not, God picked them. And whether they mess up or not, they'll be your family until the end. So let us, let us stand together. Let us be united in one people and be restorers of the lost and fallen. Can you say amen to that? Thank you for listening to this session of Come Celebrate. We hope you enjoyed.